The following audio is from Jacob's Well Church. For more information about Jacob's Well Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. Amen. If you would please open to Romans chapter 4. It is page 941 in the Red Bible, which is located in front of you, in the chair in front of you. Uh, Page 1119 in the Blue Large Print Bible and page 1224 in the Children's Bible. As you turn there, two notes. Uh, First off, the outline um, that I gave to Angie on Thursday uh, to print the bulletins is different than the outline I ended up with last night. So you can follow along on the screen and make the corrections in your bulletin. Um, The second thing is that as we read through this passage, I want you to uh, note two words in particular. Uh, If you have your own Bible, you can underline it if you want, if you're not against such things. Um, But one of the words is faith, and so you can underline or circle that. And the other word is the verbal form of faith, which is the word believe. It's, it's faith in action. And so when you see those words, feel free just to note them in your head or circle them in your Bible. So let's read together Romans chapter 4, verse 13 through 25. Romans four thirteen, For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world, did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null, and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherents of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. And hope, Abraham believed against hope, that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words that was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Let's pray. Lord, as we dive into your holy, inerrant, inspired, perfect word, We pray, God, that your spirit would remove the blinders of our heart to let the truths of the gospel that that penetrated the church 500 years ago would penetrate us today, Lord. 
would change us and transform us and renovate the world that we live in. Do this by your spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So it was October 31st, 500 years ago from this Tuesday, when a relatively unknown German monk did a very common thing. Martin Luther posted his 95 theses on the community billboard, which was the doors of the Wittenberg Castle or church. And he posted these theses, which is plural for the term thesis, so you can think of it as 95 theses, except it's theses, to put forward some propositions for people to consider for, for, the, for, the, for the academic world of the church to discuss. He actually posted these in Latin because that was the language of academia within the church there uh, where he was. Now what happened was far different than what Luther had expected. Luther simply wanted to start a discussion, but instead these 95 theses ended up changing the world because someone caught a glimpse of these 95 theses and they were so enamored by what was being discussed in it that they actually took those 95 theses without Luther's permission or even Luther's knowledge and they translated it into the common language of German and they started to distribute it to the people. And as people got a hold of these 95 theses, as they were reminded of the truths of the gospel, they continued to duplicate it and distribute it, and it slowly and gradually began to change the world that they lived in. And all of a sudden, Luther, who was simply trying to start an academic discussion, became the forerunner of this tidal wave, this movement to reform the church and reclaim the scriptures and the good news of Christ. Now, before Luther posted those 95 theses and those other teachings. Before God reformed the church, he first had to reform Luther. And he did that through a simple verse, which is called the Reformation text. It's Romans 1.17. And in Romans 1.17, it says, For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith. For faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Luther had a startling revelation. His eyes could finally see, his ears could finally hear, his heart could finally comprehend what God meant by this passage. But you see, for many years, Luther had learned about faith. He had heard about faith from a young child. He had even taught about faith in a seminary setting. And yet Luther really did not understand what biblical Christian faith was. Friends, it is completely possible for you to talk about faith, to hear about faith, to even teach about faith, and not really know what biblical Christian faith is. You know, our culture throws this word faith around a lot. You know, if you're in my generation or a little bit older, you probably know George Michael's song, right? You just got to have faith, 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 right? You can do a simple Google search and you can find all these ways people use this word faith. There's this New Orleans Saints poster that says, who dat? You just got to have faith. There's a saying that says, sometimes the best thing you can do is not think, not wonder, not imagine, not obsess. Just breathe and have faith that everything will work out for the best. Others will say, 
You have to believe in yourself. Never lose faith. And again, you will hear time and time again, just keep the faith. And it's just kind of this vague, nebulous faith thing that doesn't have much description to it. And the verses that we are looking at today, Paul is going to take us to school on this subject of faith. Seven times in this passage, Paul mentions the word faith. Four times he mentions the word belief, which again is the verbal form of this noun faith. And so my hope today is that as we study this passage, that we would gain a biblical understanding of Christian faith. Because not all faith is the same. Not all faith is created equal. And the faith that we should subscribe to is the faith that God promotes, isn't it? And so my hope is to understand this faith afresh. Just as Luther did, just as the church did, just as it transformed the world, my hope is that it would transform us. And so as we look at biblical Christian faith, I want to look at three aspects of it. Paul teaches us three aspects. He teaches us the necessity of biblical Christian faith, the audacity of biblical Christian faith, and the exclusivity of biblical Christian faith. First, let's look at the necessity of biblical faith. Christian faith. Look at verse 13 with me. The Apostle Paul writes, For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Now, if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, this guy Abraham was a great descendant of Jesus. He was the father of Christians, the fathers of Jews. He lived about 4,000 years before Jesus, before Paul. Uh, he was a normal guy. He lived in Ur of the Chaldeans. He, he was an idol worshiper who worshiped false gods. And yet God, by his surprising grace, shows up to Abraham, this guy who really has nothing going for him. And he makes three extraordinary promises to him. We walk through this a lot. With their are three Ps. It's a great framework for reading through the Old Testament and even through the New Testament. But we see all of these promises kind of flushed out in today's passage. God comes to Abraham, this man, and he promises him his presence, that, that God would be with him. We'll cover that in the third point. He also promises to Abraham that he will become a great people. He will become a nation, which we'll cover in the second point. But in this point, he promises Abraham a property. Now, when you read in the Old Testament about the property that God promises, it is called the promised land. It is the land of Canaan. But here in verse 13, Paul says something so interesting. He says, it's not just that we as the offspring of Abraham will inherit the promised land of Canaan, but we will actually inherit the entire world. It's similar to what Jesus says in Matthew 5 when he says, blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth. And so what's going on here? What does it mean that the descendants of Abraham will inherit the earth, that they will inherit the world? You see, when God promised Abraham a promised land, even Abraham knew that Canaan was just a shadow of the ultimate promised land. The writer of Hebrews tells us this. And speaking of Abraham, the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 11, says, for Abraham was looking forward to the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. As it is, they, Abraham and Sarah, desired a better country, a country better than Canaan, a a country better than Canaan that was flowing with milk and honey. They desired a heavenly one. 
Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. See, as Abraham was looking forward to the promised land of Canaan, he was also looking through the promised land of Canaan to the ultimate promised land of heaven for all eternity, which is also called the new heavens and the new earth. And so the question is, how do we become heirs of this promised land? How do we become children of Abraham to inherit the earth? Well, verse 13 tells us what is not the way and what is the way. Again, verse 13 says, For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not, did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Paul here is assuming this understanding that it is the righteous that will inherit the kingdom of God, the righteous that will inherit the new heavens and the new earth. And Paul says that we do not merit this righteousness through the law by obeying God's law. Rather, we receive it as an inheritance by faith. That by faith, not by works, we are co-heirs with Abraham of the new heavens and the new earth. And we will reign with Christ over that final promised land forever. Now, why is this? Why, Why is it? That biblical Christian faith is necessary to inherit heaven. Why can't there be two ways to heaven? Why can't it be that, hey, you can either obey the law and do well and make it to heaven, or you can get it by faith? Why can't there be two ways? Why, has there only been, why is there only one way to inherit heaven? Well, verse 14 tells us this very clearly. It says, for if, it's, for if it is the adherence of the law, those who obey the law, who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. Paul is drawing a very firm line in the sand here. He's telling us this is an all or nothing proposition, that you have to put all your eggs in one basket. You can put either all your bags, all your eggs in the basket of your own obedience to the law, your own moral perfection, or you must put all the eggs in the basket of faith and receiving heaven as a gift of God's grace. It can't be 50% by your good works and 50% by faith because if you make any of salvation contingent on your goodness, what Paul says here is you actually make your faith in God null. You make his promises void. If you put any reliance on yourself, any reliance on your own goodness, you make God's promises void. That is serious language. And the reason for that we see here in verse 15. It says, For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. Paul here is not saying that the law is bad. Later in Romans 7, he talks about how good the law is. But what Paul is saying here is that if you use God's law as a means to acquire the promised land, of heaven for all eternity. If you, if you use the Ten Commandments as a ladder to climb your way to God, to climb your way to heaven, then the only thing that God's perfect love will do is reveal your sinfulness, will reveal God's wrath. It will act like a mirror showing you your flaws, your foils, your sins, your transgressions. And so even if 1% of your salvation depended on you and your goodness, you would fail that 1%. And because of that 1%, you would inherit, not the promised land of God, 
but the wrath of God for all eternity. And so it must be all or nothing. It must be all by faith or all by your own goodness. Verse 16, Paul continues and he says, that is why, because, because works righteousness brings God's wrath, that is why it depends on faith in order that the promises may rest on grace. Not on your goodness, but on the grace of God. It rests. And be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherents of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. That is, the father of all who believes. Let me illustrate this way. One time, I was able to go with my parents to the Royal Gorge in Colorado. Uh, the Royal Gorge is, is this great big canyon. I guess it's called Gorge because it's not so wide. I don't know why it's not called a canyon. But it's a thousand feet deep. And when you look down in it, it's, it's scary to see. I mean, you're just looking down and down and down. It's over three football fields deep, if that, if that helps you visualize it. And you look down there and it's terrifying. But there's also this bridge that goes across it because the expanse from one side to the other is about 300 feet, which is the length of one football field. And so there are two ways to cross the Royal Gorge. You can either trust in your own abilities and try to jump across the Royal Gorge, which I would not recommend, or you can put your faith in the bridge and walk across it. See, it's either one or the other. You can't do both. You can't jump halfway and pick up the bridge the other half. You can't pick up the bridge halfway and jump the other half. You either trust in the bridge and put your faith in that, or you go by your own merit and try to jump across the gorge. This is what Paul is trying to tell us here. That biblical Christian faith is necessary because perfect biblical Christian obedience is impossible. Mark Twain put it this way. He said, heaven goes by favor. That means by kindness or by grace. Heaven goes by favor. If it went by merit, you would stay out and your dog would go in. There's some truth to that, isn't it? Friends, let me ask, where is your hope of heaven resting upon? Is even 1% resting on your own goodness? Then it will stir the wrath of God. Does it, does it depend on your obedience to God's law, on being a good person, on being a worthy Christian? It must rest 100% by faith on the bridge of God's grace. Biblical Christian faith is necessary because perfect biblical obedience is an impossibility for us. That is the necessity of our faith. Paul moves on to talk about the audacity of biblical Christian faith, and he uses Abraham as an example. Look at verse 16 with me again. Paul says, that is why it depends on faith, not obedience to the law, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherents of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into the existence the things that did not exist, referring back to the, the glory of creation. Verse 18. In hope, Abraham believed against 
hope. That's an awesome phrase that we'll turn back to in a little bit. In hope, Abraham believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He, Abraham, did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. Verse 18 again, Paul says, In hope, Abraham believed against hope. Such an interesting phrase. But very simply what it means is that Abraham hoped in God's promises when his circumstances looked absolutely hopeless. You see, when God first appeared to Abraham, God promised Abraham that his wife Sarah would birth a child. At this time, Abraham was 75 years old and his wife Sarah was 65 years old. She had proved herself to be barren over those 65 years as they sought time and again to conceive. At age 65, Sarah was most likely postmenopausal, which means she couldn't have children. So Sarah having a child at the age of 65 seemed pretty hopeless. But it got worse than that. You see, when God promised Abraham and Sarah a child, he did not tell them when that child was going to come. And so Sarah and Abraham waited, hoping and believing in the promise of God that he would deliver a child to them, regardless of their external circumstances. Day after day, week after week, month after year, month after month, year after year, they waited for God to fulfill his promise, even as it became increasingly more impossible and hopeless. I mean, could you imagine Could you imagine how excited Abraham and Sarah were at first? They had been wanting a child. They could not have a child. God appears and he says, I will give you a child. They must have been walking on cloud nine. And each year, as they celebrated the anniversary of God's promise, it became more unlikely, more hopeless, more foolish looking that God to believe that God would fulfill that promise. And yet Abraham, for 25 years, despite his circumstances, believed God, even when Sarah was 90 years old and he was 100 years old. And Paul so eloquently says, he was as good as dead, right? So nice. Don't say that to your grandparents, by the way. Paul says he was as good as dead. There's no way he could have a baby. And yet, Despite the hopelessness of the situation, Abraham hoped in God. See, God did not call Abraham and Sarah to an easy faith, but to an audacious faith. One that would hope against all hope in the promise of God. Paul continues in verse 20. He says, No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. This is a great definition of faith right here. Verse 21, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteous. When Abraham was 75 and Sarah was 65, there was still an outside chance that maybe she could conceive. 
There are reports of women over the age of 65, up to 72 potentially, having a child. But the time, by the time that Abraham reached 100 and Sarah was 90, their faith simply looked foolish to the world. Abraham's faith was an audacious faith because in hope, Abraham believed against hope. It was an audacious faith because when his circumstances seemed to dictate that the promises of God were not going to be fulfilled, he continued to believe, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Fully convinced that God would give his wife Sarah a child, even though their bodies were as good as dead. Now if you know anything about Abraham's story, you know that Abraham's audacious faith was not a perfect faith. Matter of fact, when you first read this passage, you might wonder, was Paul reading the same Bible I read? You may remember that whole Hagar incident. Genesis 16 tells us about it. This happens, I believe, 15 years after God makes this promise to Abraham and Sarah. In Genesis 16, I'll just read you the first four verses of that chapter. It says, Now Sarai, Abraham's, fa- Abraham's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar, and Sarai said to Abraham, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. She's blaming God. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abraham listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abraham had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abraham's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abraham, her husband, as a wife. And he went into her, and she conceived You see, what this reminds us of is that audacious faith is not perfect faith. Abraham and Sarah questioned the promise of God. They decided to take matters into their own hands. But as we read in Abraham's faith story, and as Paul tells us here in verse 20, Abraham grew strong in his faith. He grew because his faith wasn't perfect. Right? You don't grow if your faith is perfect, but Abraham grew strong in his faith. And Abraham, who, who took matters into his own hands and slept with Hagar, was the same Abraham who 25 years later, when the Lord comes to him and says, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and offer him as a burnt offering. That Abraham who failed 25 years earlier is the same Abraham who says, got up early the next morning. In audacious faith, gathered the firewood, gathered his son, and headed to the place where he was to be sacrificed. And Abraham went there and tied up his son and lifted up the dagger because he believed this, as Hebrews eleven nineteen tells us. Because Abraham believed that God was able even to raise him from the dead. That is audacious faith. But Abraham did not have perfect faith. None of us have perfect faith. You see, audacious faith is growing faith. A faith that is expanding its territory over every area of our life. Let me give you this example. This past week, I was on vacation. And the first day of my vacation, uh, we woke up early around 4.30 a.m. That's early for me. And we're headed off with my family to Devil's Lake State Park to get a campsite. There are only a few non-reservable sites left. And so we took off early. And about two hours into the trip, surrounded by cornfields, my gas starts sputtering. It kind of goes in and out, in and out, in and out. Finally, 
my car just died. And so there I am in my pickup truck with my wife and my five kids and the camper on the back with bikes overflowing out of the pickup truck, trying to get to Devil's Lake State Park so we can get a campsite. And my truck is completely dead. And as I sat there with my son, the other family went off to a church close by. I thought to myself, this is God's good plan for my life. I did. I was like, this is God's plan. And, and maybe he didn't want us to have a certain campsite or maybe he wanted us to go to a different campsite. But, but this is God's plan for my life. This is how, how God's faith was, 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 ex, was expanding in my life. But then I got to the last day of vacation. And there's a different story. So, so it was, I played in this rec league football team. And it was the last game of the year. And so my wife and kids decided to come to the second half of this rec league football game. And so they left Awana and youth group a little early. They get there and they come to watch dad play, right? And I play quarterback. And in that half, I threw four or five interceptions, okay? I lost track after three. I, I was so beside myself, I threw two of them in our own end zone. It was so depressing. And I tell you what was not going through my head at that time. I was not thinking, this is God's good plan for my life. I wasn't thinking that. I was thinking, this is so embarrassing. It's my family's fault. What's going on? You see, audacious faith is not perfect faith. Audacious faith is expanding faith that continues to gain more real estate in our lives. That continues to grow over every single sphere of our life. I hope and pray that your faith is not done growing. I hope and pray that your audacious faith is expanding into areas that maybe it has not penetrated. Where is God calling you towards audacious faith? Where is God calling you to, in hope, believe against hope? And to be fully convinced that God is able to do what he has promised. You see, I'm guessing that God has not promised any of you 65-year-olds that you're going to have a baby. Just my guess. But God has given us greater promises. Jesus promises us in Matthew 11. He says, come to me. All who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Are you weary? Are you heavy laden? Have you yet gone to Jesus? Because he gives you this promise. Come to me, and I will give you rest for your souls. Or what about the promise in James 1.5, where it says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. Any of you trying to figure out a decision in your life, wondering which way to go, and yet you have forgotten to talk to God about it? Or how about the promise in 1 Corinthians 10? God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, God will also provide the way of escape. Anyone here enslaved to addiction or Negative attitudes that just says, you know what? That's just the way God may be. That's the way it's going to be. Audacious faith calls us to believe that God is faithful to his promise. That God will not let us be tempted beyond our ability. And that, that God always gives us a way out. One final promise. That promise that, that maybe you don't like when people say to you, but, but maybe you just need to believe. Romans eight twenty eight. 
And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Do you believe this to be true? This is a calling to audacious faith, to believe that God is using all things in your life, meaning bad things, evil things, wicked things, good things, great things. God is using all things to conform you to the image of Jesus. Do you believe this when your printer at home runs out of ink? Do you believe this when you get a flat tire? Do you believe this when you lose your job or when a loved one hurts you or even when you are sitting in the midst of chronic pain? Biblical Christian faith is not perfect faith, but is audacious faith that continues to expand over every area, every territory of our life to believe in hope against hope that God is able to do what he has promised. And so in this school of faith, the Apostle Paul shows us the necessity of biblical faith because we cannot merit heaven by our own good works. He showed us the audacity of biblical Christian faith that believes even when the circumstances look hopeless. But he ends with the exclusivity of biblical Christian faith. Look at verse 20 with me. Paul writes, No unbelief made Abraham waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. Now here's a major switch in the text where Paul takes this argument and applies it to his readers. Of these verses, verse 23 through 25, Luther actually says is the whole of Christianity. Verse 23, but the words it was counted to him were not written for Abraham's sake alone but for ours also, it being the righteousness of Christ, the righteousness of God, it will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. As we mentioned earlier, there are many different types of faith, many different sayings about faith, many different beliefs about faith. But here Paul is very specific about what is the object of biblical Christian faith. It is not faith in ourselves or faith in faith or faith in a higher power. Our faith is counted as righteous if and only if we believe what is true. These two exclusive claims of Paul. He boils it down. He makes it very easy. These are the two things that you must believe. These are the two things you must have faith in to inherit the earth. First in verse 25, he says, Jesus our Lord was delivered up for our trespasses. That is, Jesus our Lord was delivered up for our offenses against God, for our disobedience to the law, for our deviation from God's plan. This is also called simply sin. And so Paul is saying the reason why Jesus was delivered up, the reason why Jesus died on the cross is because that is what we deserve. That is what our sin deserves, to be punished by God, to die, to endure the wrath of God, but that by God's grace, Jesus is our substitute. Commentator Donald Gray Barnhouse illustrates this point of Christ's substitutionary death, substituting you for for him by reminding us of Barabbas. 
Do you remember Barabbas? Barabbas was that, was that guy who was the murderer, the insurrectionist, the guy who, who was causing a lot of trouble in Jerusalem, who was sitting in prison, writing, waiting to be executed. And Pilate comes forward to the crowd as his Passover tradition was to release a prisoner. He says, hey, who do you want me to release? Do you want me to release Barabbas or do you want me to release Jesus? And they say, release Barabbas. What do you want me to do with Jesus? Crucify him. Barnhouse goes on and writes this. I love the imagery. He says, and so you could imagine Barabbas sitting in the prison, staring at his hands, which were soon to be pierced by nails, and shuddering at any sound of hammering that might remind him with horror of his own impending crucifixion. Suddenly, he hears a crowd roaring outside the prison. There are angry voices. Crucify him. Crucify him. He thinks he hears his own name. But then a jailer comes to unlock the door of his cell. Barabbas thinks that the time for his execution has come. But instead, the jailer tells him that he is being set free. The crowd has called for his release. And Jesus of Nazareth is to die instead. Stunned, Barabbas joins the processional that is making its way to Calvary and watches as Jesus is crucified. He hears the sounds of hammer and knows that the blows that are fastening Jesus to the rough wooden cross were meant for him. He sees the cross lifted high into place and knows that he is the one who should be dying on it. Jesus cries out, Father, forgive them for they know not what they are doing. And the centurion who has commanded the execution party exclaims, Surely this man was the Son of God. And then he ends by saying this, Barabbas must have been saying, That man took my place. I am the one who should have died. I am the condemned murderer. That man did nothing wrong. He is dying for me. Friends, Jesus did not just die in the place of Barabbas. Jesus died in the place of all who believe in him. Do you believe this? Do you believe that Jesus was your substitute? That Jesus took your place and your punishment? This is the first thing Paul says we must have faith in. The first thing we must believe that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. The second thing he said we must believe. Look at verse 24 with me. He says that it, Christ's righteousness, will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. This phrase, raised for our justification, is such an interesting phrase. Theologians love to play around with it and think about what it means because justification is this legal term, this big legal term that means someone being declared right or innocent. And we normally connect it with Christ's crucifixion, that Christ died on the cross, that he paid the penalty for my sin. And so that's where our justification takes place. But here Paul connects it to the resurrection. And the question is, how is our justification being declared right connected with Christ's resurrection? Well, the way that it's connected is that Christ's resurrection proves that the price for our sin was paid in full. That God's wrath was fully satisfied. That Christ no longer needed to suffer in hell for all eternity for you and for me. Because Christ took on the full punishment of God and it was complete. You see, Christ's resurrection is kind of like a receipt. Or, or like, 
Or, or kind of like getting outside the doors of a Sam's Club or, or Costco. If you've ever been there, you know you go through the checkout line, right? You, you pay for your groceries, and then you head to the door. And there's a person waiting there to examine you, to scrutinize you, to, to make sure that the debt has been paid. And so you pull up your cart, and they, they grab your receipt, and they look at the receipt, and they look at the cart, and they look at the receipt, and they look at the cart, and then they look at you. And it's, it's all very awkward, isn't it? But then they take out that magic highlighter, and they mark it off. And then you walk out of the store free, and you say, condemn no more. I am set free. It has been paid for. It is finished. You see, Christ's resurrection, it's like walking out of Sam's Club. It's like walking out of Costco. It proves that the debt has been fully paid. Because if it hasn't been fully paid, you could never leave. Christ could not leave hell. He could not leave the punishment of God unless the debt for your sin and mine was paid in full. Christ's resurrection proves there is no more to be paid by you or by me for all eternity if we trust in him. I found a lot of quotes in Luther over this past past month. My one of my favorites is this. I believe it's up on the screen. Can you put it up, Jason? It says this. So when the devil throws your sins in your face and declares that you deserve death and hell, tell him this. I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? I love that. What of it, Satan? You're right. I deserve death. I deserve hell. What of it? For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf, his name is Jesus Christ, Son of God, and where he is, there I shall be also. Friends, biblical Christian faith is so simple, but it is so exclusive. We must believe that Christ died for our sins and rose on the third day, fully paying off our penalty and justifying us before God. I'm running a little long here, but I think it's appropriate on this Reformation Sunday that we end with Luther's reflections on that Reformation text. Romans 1.17 again, where it says, For in the gospel the righteousness of God is revealed from faith, for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Luther, thinking back to his, to his moment where, where this all became clear, says this. He journals this. He says, I hate that the word, the righteousness of God, by which I have been taught according to the custom and use of all teachers, that God is righteous and punishes the unrighteous sinner. See, Luther was angry with God because Luther got this order wrong. Luther thought that through, through righteousness came faith, that he had to be righteous, and when he was righteous, then he had faith. But it was the other way around. You see, God opened Luther's eyes to see that it was not through his righteousness that he gained faith, but it's through his faith that he gained Christ's righteousness. And he goes on to say, At last, meditating day and night, by the mercy of God, I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that through which the righteous live by a gift of God, namely, by faith. Here I felt as if I were entirely born again and have entered paradise itself through the gates that had been flung open. Friends, the good news of the gospel is that the righteousness God requires 
is a righteousness that God provides through faith in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord God, we believe. Help our unbelief. Help us grow in our faith, Lord. Help us to remember and stand upon your promises more and more, God. Lord, it should have been us upon that cross because it was what we deserved. And yet we praise you because you sent your only son, Jesus, to take our place. Lord, as we turn to your table, we are reminded of Christ's sacrifice. We are reminded that he shed his own blood for our sin to wash us pure. And that he rose on the third day to give evidence, to give proof that the price was paid in full. And that now we can have peace with you. Lord, pray as we take these elements, pray that you would remind us that it is not by our own works that we come to you, but we come to you by faith and the work of another. That we come to you by faith in the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. And may this lead us to rejoicing and hope against hope and a faith that endures and expands for the rest of our life. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.